All right, you two, it's my turn. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we've come here today because we have to fix our eyes on you. It's the only way that we can move forward in our personal lives and in our life together as a church. So we've come today to fix our eyes on you. And Spirit of God, we ask that you would help us to see Jesus ever more clearly this morning. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may have noticed over the last few months, because of the flu season, I encourage us to stop shaking hands and rather to do fist bumps. You wouldn't believe how often people shake my hand and I'll say, how are you? And they'll say to me, oh, i got flu. It's like, oh, are you kidding? <laughs> Don't do that. Because I become the one who passes the disease around the church. It's kind of nice. I get to infect you all. And so we switch to fist bumps rather than handshakes. But isn't it interesting that we still have to touch? Somehow there's, there's, there's something that we need to reach out and to touch one another, at least to some degree. Now, some degree. They did, a, they did some research a few years ago where they used cameras in coffee shops to find out how often do people touch one another. Interesting. Puerto Rico. The average time that people touched one another in an hour was 180 times. Isn't that amazing? Just incredible. In Paris, it was 110 times during an hour. Then they came across to the US. In Florida, it was twice an hour. And then they went to London. Not at all. (laughs) So it's a cultural thing that we touch one another in certain cultures more often than not. But touch is vital to human life. During World War II, they decided that because of the bombing of London, they needed to take infants out of the city to protect them. And so their mothers turned over little infants to nurses, and they were taken by train out into the country. The problem was there weren't enough nurses to go around with the infants, and babies started to die. And they were dying because they weren't being handled. They weren't being cuddled. They had no physical touch at all. In fact, they figured out afterwards it would have been safer to leave them in London under the bombing than to have removed them from that vital place where they could be touched. And it's interesting if you think about it, how often just the right now, we're talking about appropriate touch, okay? There's inappropriate touch. There's times when you shouldn't touch somebody. And there's times when you don't want to be touched. But touch is still part of, of our human, humanness. We want and we need touch. With cuddling and with, with appropriate touch, children thrive and grow, but so do adults. And it's amazing how just sometimes just the lightest touch, somebody just touches you on the arm or pats you on the back, just the lightest possible touch communicates something that, that encourages you, that motivates you, that moves you. Human beings are made to touch one another appropriately, but to touch one another because it's got nurturing capacity built into it. What's interesting is that as you read through the Gospels, you will find that Jesus often touched people. People would bring the the sick to him to be touched by him and healed. People would bring their children to him to be touched by him. On one occasion, uh, Peter, Simon Peter's mother, was ill. And we read this, that Peter, so Jesus went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. In Mark chapter 9 we read, he took little child, child and put, placed him among them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes his children. 
deliberately taking his, putting them in his arms. We read in Matthew chapter, uh, Mark chapter 5, one of the most beautiful pictures, a little girl who was about 12 years old, I guess, had died. And Jesus went into a room and it says, and he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were all absolutely astonished. One of the most memorable touches that Jesus did was a time when he crossed over the law and broke the law in order to touch somebody. And when he also did something that for most of us we would consider very foolish. He reached out and he touched a man who was completely infected with the single most dread disease of those days. The man had leprosy. And Jesus didn't just touch him. Jesus embraced him. And that story is recorded for us because one of the things we're doing is we're focusing right now on fixing our eyes on Jesus. We're told that that if we fix our eyes on him, Hebrews chapter 12, and if we behold his glory, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that act helps us in our own personal growth. We need to see Jesus as he is because God is changing us into people who are just like Jesus. And if we're going to become just like Jesus, we need to be seeing what he's like. We need to see how he lived his life and learn from him. So usually when I choose a passage of scripture, I want to have one idea, just one. In fact, you can test me on that. The sermon should have one idea that clearly focuses everything from that sermon. Unfortunately, this one I've got two, so I don't know how to make both of them fit, so you're just going to have to live with the fact that there's two. And here they are. The first picture that we want us to see is that in order for him to do his work, Jesus touched the Father. He touched the Father in prayer, constantly, repeatedly, over and over again. But then in order to do his ministry, Jesus also touched people. And he met their real needs. If you'd like to follow along in the Bible, it's in Mark chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And what the Gospel of Mark shows is that as Jesus walked this earth, he was taking back satanic territory. Satan had taken control of this world. And as Jesus came, he started to take back territory from Satan. And as he did so, he was doing it through his preaching, through his teaching. He was doing it through his miracles. And the crowds were being drawn to him. More and more people were coming to him. They were coming all the way up from Judea, a couple of days trip up to, to Galilee because the word about Jesus began to spread and people were gathering closer and closer and coming around him. And every time he performed a miracle, he was taking back territory from Satan. Every time someone became a follower of his, he was taking back territory from Satan. There's a sense in which that's what we do. If we're doing our job correctly, we're taking back territory from Satan. Every person who becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, Satan loses. Every time we live a lifestyle that is more like Jesus, Satan loses. So when the church is doing what we should be doing, we're taking back territory from Satan all of the time. And so we find Jesus in the midst of all of this, touching the untouchable. And the interesting thing is, the first part was that he touched the Father. We find that Jesus constantly, as he was doing this, maintained constant touch with God. Do you remember there's a story too once where as he was walking through the crowd, a woman who had a blood disorder of some kind moved her way through the crowds and she reached out and she touched him. And as she touched him, he could feel some of his power drain. 
he felt something that, that she had touched him and he turned around and, and spoke to her. So as Jesus was doing his work, he's a physical man, he's God and man at once, physically he would get drained. And so he would pull away from the crowds for a while and spend time with the Father. We read this. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Interesting thing is this was a Sunday morning, just from the, the previous context, to place on the Sabbath, on the Saturday, and on that day he was healing people. And then he got up early in the morning. Now, did Jesus get up early in the morning because he felt an obligation? Oh, gosh. I've got to pray. That's what I'm taught. You need to pray, so you've got to discipline yourself and get up and pray. Was that what he was doing? I don't think so at all. He'd spent eternity in communion with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Then he'd taken upon himself humanity and lived here separated from them in that sense for those years. And I think he just longed for home. He just went back home whenever he could. And he would go away to a a private place where he could be isolated and alone with God the Father. We learned this last week, and again I recommend that you do that. That you find a place of solitude. A place where you go and you turn off your phone. (laughs) I'm glad I remembered. A place where you go, turn off your phone, set everything aside that you possibly can. Find a place where you can have solitude. And the reason why you want to do that is because you will constantly distract yourself. I can't do it here. Because you distract me, and that's okay. But I distract me. I'll, I'll try and pray here, and it's kind of like, oh, man, I need to go check, make sure we turned off the air conditioning. You know what I mean? There's always something that I can do. You need to go to some place where you can't do anything, where you can be alone. And that's what Jesus did. He would go up to a solitary place. And as you read the Gospels, you find out this wasn't just one occasion. He did this habitually. And he did it because he wanted to go home, be with the Father and, and, and with the Spirit. He also did it because Jesus was fully aware, and here's the interesting thing, that he needed the power of the Spirit of God, and he needed the power of God the Father to do his ministry. When he took upon himself humanity, Jesus put some of his rights and his authority and his powers on hold. It's kind of like hitting the the hold button on a telephone and the light's flashing. He's still God. The power's still there. But he chose to live in submission to God the Father. He said to the disciples, don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. So he was dependent upon God the Father as he did his ministry. Remember what happened when he first started his ministry? The Spirit of God came upon him. And the Spirit of God, we're told in Isaiah chapter 6, came upon him so that he could bind up the brokenhearted. He could set the captives free. And so he was totally dependent upon the Father and the Spirit to do what God had called him to do. We don't need it. We're okay. We can just wing it. You know what I mean? Come on. I don't need to pray. I've got it all. I've figured it out. Are you kidding? If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we need time of prayer? And so the first thing in fixing our eyes on Jesus is to notice this. You and I cannot grow spiritually. You and I cannot grow morally. You and I cannot become the people God intended us to be unless we spend time in prayer. And again, it's not to guilt us into prayer. It's just to make us aware that prayer is to our life what oxygen is to us. (laughs) The natural habitat 
of a fish is water. The natural habitat of a follower of Jesus is prayer. Because that's where we breathe in the life with God. And so Jesus did it not because he was forced to, but because he was fully aware that he needed God the Father. He needed God the Spirit in his life. And remember that as we become more and more like Jesus, we become more and more the person God intended us to be in the first place. That to me is one of the most amazing thoughts. That as you become more and more like Jesus, the real you starts to show up. The veneer begins to be peeled away. And the real person that God wants you to become begins to be revealed. And so when we spend time in prayer, we're doing it because God wants us in his presence. But we're doing it because as we're in his presence, he changes us and turns us into the people he wants us to be. And so Jesus, in the midst of doing all of this work, touching all these lives, withdrew repeatedly in order to touch God the Father. We also learn from this passage that Jesus touched the real needs of people. Okay? Here's what happened. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. What are you doing here? You need to get down there where the people are. You're, 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 you're getting more and more famous. You need to keep going like that. Do you see what, what would happen like that? Come on. His brothers once did that to him. Like Jesus wasn't going to Jerusalem. And they said, you've got to go there. You're, you're famous. You need to build on your fame. You need to grow more and more followers. You need to go to Jerusalem. I found a cartoon once that showed a pastor's secretary looking through the door and he's on his knees praying and she looks through the door and she says, oh good, you're not doing anything. <laughs> it's basically what they said to him. What are you thinking? The people are down there. Our market is here. We got, man, we can bring more people in. I think one of the reasons they were so annoyed is because they love being in the limelight with him. Now, I'm, I'm one of his, I'm with, I'm with Jesus. I'm one of the great guys. I think that was part of their problem. They wanted Jesus down there with the crowd so that they could enjoy all of this activity. And so they're annoyed at him. The people were annoyed. They had a right. He should be down here healing us. I don't know about you, but I sometimes treat God like that. I have a right. I have prayed about this and you haven't answered. That expectation that God is supposed to be a genie. Who when I tell him to do something, he pops out and says, Sir, I will do what you call me to do. And so we often get frustrated with God because our expectations are wrong. We expect that he should do what we tell him to do. And he should be here meeting my needs right now, every one of them. I should not be unhappy. I should not be miserable. I should not be sad. I should be in a place of total bliss. Here's the thing to understand. That nowhere in the Bible does God promise us that if we are spiritual and if we're doing what he wants us to do, we will get to the place where our lives are perfect. No problems, no depression, no sad feelings. If I'm in the place of faith, my life will be perfect. God doesn't promise that anywhere. Nowhere. He says he gives us joy. But when you talk to people, you'll find that the time when joy shows up in our lives is mostly when we're not very happy at all. Because times when we're unhappy, only then can God get in and bring us joy. And so there was this, this, this sense of entitlement by the disciples. You should be down here with us. 
There was a sense of entitlement among the people that Jesus should come down and do it. And so Jesus got up and he went, ah, okay. Ah, you're right. Okay, I'll come down. Not at all. (laughs) Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else. (laughs) You go, are you kidding? There's sick people that need to be healed down there, Jesus. Let's go somebody else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Notice that. When Jesus performed a miracle, those miracles were actually living parables. They were parables that were created to, to, they were done to create awe in people, but they were signs of something else. When he performed miracles, they were living parables to teach lessons. So, for example, when he healed somebody, that was a foretaste of heaven, where we won't have any diseases. When he raised somebody from the dead, it was a foretaste of the resurrection. And so when Jesus performed his miracles, they weren't just standalones. He wasn't just a magician going around doing magic acts so that people could enjoy that. Unfortunately, that's why they were following him. They wanted to see more of the magic. No, every one of his, every one of his healings was a parable, a living lesson about himself and about what God had come to do. And so Jesus here says, I didn't come here to do magic acts. I came here to preach. And unfortunately, the word preach sounds like he was going to stand up and he was going to do what I'm doing. The word is proclaim, to tell people about the kingdom of God, to tell people that God has sent me in order to invite you to come into his kingdom for eternity. And so evangelize would be another word we would use there, to tell people the good news. He said, so let's go to nearby villages. You go, Jesus, you're supposed to be nice. You're supposed to go down there and heal those people. Some of them are your townspeople. They know you. You really should go and meet their needs right now. And Jesus is going, no, I've got a bigger agenda. See, his greater agenda was to heal the souls of people. You heal bodies, they eventually die. Even Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? He raised him from the dead. Lazarus died again. It's kind of like, oh, darn, you're kidding. After that incredible thing, I got to come back from the dead. I'm going to die again. Oh, are you kidding? Yeah, yep, you'll die. And then you'll be resurrected for eternity. But still, okay, Jesus did something here that's kind of, Jesus, that's not nice of you. There were people hurting down there. You should go and care for them. And so Jesus does something that, that, that matches his overall agenda. His overall agenda is to seek and to save those who are lost. To heal the souls of people not just their bodies. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. He didn't stop doing the miracles. But he went and watched where he went, preaching in their synagogues. The synagogues were the place where the Jewish people would gather to hear the word of God taught to them. And so when they came to those places, because Jesus was, one of, was a Jew, he had the right, when the synagogues gathered, to stand up and teach them. And that's what he did when he first started his ministry. He stood up and he read Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the captives, to set the captives free, to bind up the brokenhearted. So Jesus normally would be able to go into a synagogue, open the scriptures and tell them about himself and about the kingdom. So hang on to that thought just for a moment. So he went proclaiming the the, the kingdom of God in the synagogues and driving out demons. Jesus kept in touch with God the Father, and he touched the real needs in the lives of people. Their real needs were not materialistic. 
their real needs were the needs of their souls. And that's true for us today. That Jesus' overall concern is not to make us wealthy and happy. Okay, those guys on TV, they're wrong. Where they promise that if you're a faithful Christian, you will be healthy and wealthy and wise and you also have an airplane like they have. That's absolute nonsense, okay? That is not God's agenda for us. He doesn't want, his, his goal is not to give us a happy, contented life with a nice little house and a picket fence and all that kind of nonsense. That's good, that stuff, okay? He does give us that stuff, but that's not his goal. His goal is to transform us, change us into people who are being prepared to live in the kingdom to come. So Jesus touched the Father. He touched the real needs of people, which was their souls. But there was a day when he touched an untouchable man, a man who he should never have gone anywhere near. We read this. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing You can make me clean. The word that is used here for leprosy is actually was actually a more uh, general term. It it described any kind of skin disease that people would get. Leprosy was the most terrifying, terrifying one of all. In fact, it's the most dreaded disease in ancient times. I just want to read to you what it was like. Lepers were considered people who were already dead. You watch these movies that people for some reason love, the living, walking dead and stuff like that. That's what they were like. They were like the walking, living dead. Considered people who were already dead even though they were still alive. One form of the disease robbed the extremities, including the eyes, ears and nose of all sensation, acting like an anesthetic. An afflicted person could suffer a cut or burn or broken bone without being aware of it. Along with injuries that became infected, the disease also caused ulcerated growths all over and even within the body that seeped a foul discharge. It so devastated a person that it turned them into a repulsive and hideous wreck. Their hands, feet, and even their faces could be affected, often rendering them unrecognizable. The disease, which could take an average nine years to run its course, ended in mental decline, coma, and ultimately death. And so you can imagine how horrific that that disease was. Now, in the law, God said that anyone who had any kind of skin disease, which included eczema, it would have included any kind of, of disease, especially leprosy, of course, had to be removed from the town and had to be isolated. And the reason God did that was in order to protect people from infections. If you were a leper and you had these, these, these boils and sores on you, they would become infected. And while leprosy, by the way, leprosy, 95% of people are immune to leprosy. And so leprosy could be transmitted by contact, but very seldom. What usually happened was that they would infect people with other infections. And so God said, if, if you've got any kind of infection like that that shows up visibly, you have to remove yourself from the, the community and stay away until you're cured. And in some cases, if it was just some kind of a skin disease, you picked up a rash or something like that, after a while, it would go away. And then you could come back into contact with other people. But when you came back into contact with other people, or before you came back into contact with other people, there were specific things that you had to do. You had to go to the priest, which was in Jerusalem. You had to go there, and he had to examine you. You had to offer a sacrifice, 
Then you had to be washed, go away for a few days, come back and be examined again before you would be allowed to go back into the community. God wasn't doing this to be ugly and evil to people with leprosy. He was doing that to protect the rest of the people from getting infection. Simple steps that they would take. You say, why the sacrifice? Because God wanted them to remember that when you see something like this, it's just a sign that there's something wrong with you that is deeper than your physical body. There's something within you that is corrupted. And the sacrifices are to cleanse you, not of physical disease, but of spiritual disease. And most of us don't like this analogy. But spiritually, before Jesus comes into your life, you and I are lepers. We're the walking dead. Ephesians chapter 2 says that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. We are spiritually like the walking dead before we let Jesus come into our life. And God makes us understand that, not because God is being cruel, but because in his kindness he wants us to understand that if we come to Jesus, we can be cleansed completely of all of the spiritual disease that we have within us by putting our faith in him. And so when they offered a, a sacrifice, it was to click in their minds, to remind them, there's another disease here that we have to deal with. Not just your physical disease, but your spiritual disease. And when they offered a sacrifice, that innocent animal died as a substitute for them. So I would take a lamb. They started with birds. I would take a bird or a lamb and it would be sacrificed and it would die in my place. That was to prepare us to understand why Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he died as a substitute for us. Instead of us having to go to hell and be punished for eternity for our sins, God legally transferred our sins onto Jesus Christ. And then he took our hell for us. So that God is legally able to forgive us. If we want it. Okay, it's not automatic. We have to be willing to come to Jesus and put our faith in him. To say, all right, I'm going to resign as God in my life. And Jesus, I want you to be my God. The moment we do that, we can be cleansed as well. And so this man, he's covered in leprosy probably advanced stage, comes to Jesus. Now, he's not allowed to do this. And I imagine that as he pushed through the crowd, people were horrified, just oh, pulling back, just completely horrified by him. Uh, years ago, I was driving home late one night, and I found a man lying alongside the road, covered in blood. And so I pulled over, and I, I went back, and he, could, he, was, he was almost gone. He was, just, he was in such bad shape. He'd been hit by a car, hit and run. And the guy just took off and left him there. His arm was broken, bone sticking through, his arm, through, through the skin, covered in blood. And he was totally confused. And I said, where did this happen? He said, I don't know. He said, but I was trying to walk to the hospital. I couldn't get there. So I decided I'd go back and lie down where the accident happened and wait for the ambulance to come. There was no ambulance coming. So I took him to the hospital. And I discovered by doing that, oh, okay, I can be around blood. I can be around somebody injured. It's like, okay, good, I can do this and took him there. Several years later, I was uh, going to a, 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 a meeting, and as I drove past, a big 18-wheeler truck turned into a parking area, and as he did so, there was this enormous crash, and dust and stuff flew everywhere, and I knew something horrible had happened, so I pulled into the parking lot, and I went back. As that 18-wheeler turned into the driveway, he, he went off the edge of the, of, of the driveway and the truck stopped with the back of the 18-wheeler sticking out. It was just an empty trailer sticking out in the road. 
and an oncoming VW bus slammed into the side of that 18-wheeler and it peeled the entire VW bus with all of the people inside off of the, the, the chassis all the way to the back. And so when I realized what had happened, I went around to, to, to try and help. And the, the sight was so absolutely horrific that I, I almost couldn't stand. It was just the most horrific thing I've ever seen. And I knew at that point in time, there's nobody I can help here at all. And I was struck with absolute horror. There was one man sitting on the side of the road. He didn't know who he was. He didn't know where he'd come from. He didn't know if he was on the street, if he was on the truck, if he was in the van. He had no idea who he was. But everybody else that was in that, that VW bus was dead. And the horror of that stuck with me. Fortunately, I had friends who were with me, and they helped me to process this. It was just one of those, those experiences in life when you're, you're shocked to your core. Well, as this man walked through the crowd, that would be what would happen to them. They would be shocked to their core, and they would pull away from him, horrified. He was not supposed to do this, but Jesus was his last and only hope. He knew that if he could not get healed and Jesus was healing people, he had no hope at all. And so he goes down on his knees, and he says, if you're willing You can make me clean. Now here's what Jesus did. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand, and and the the actual word for it is, is more he pulled him to himself. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus broke the law, but he knew why he was breaking the law. He was about to heal the man. So, you know, kind of we have to let him break the law at this point in time because there's a greater law. That's at work right now. And he pulled the man to himself and filled with compassion. This is the word, if the old King James Version said, filled with bowels of mercy. It's kind of a weird word, eh? Except when you're moved with compassion, where does it move you? Not here. It's somewhere down here. And that's why the Bible called it bowels of mercy, bowels of compassion. He was inwardly moved with compassion for this man. And he said, I'm willing be clean, and immediately the leprosy left him. Now notice this, it wasn't the touch that healed him. It was Jesus' command, be clean. That's what healed him. But can you imagine what it was like to be touched? Who knows how many years it had been since somebody had touched this man's life, body? How many years it had been before he, since he had finally felt someone else touch him? And the touch, I think, was part of, of Jesus' intent to heal that man. We read this. Somebody tried to describe it. The healing was sudden and complete. His feet, toeless, ulcerated stubs, were suddenly whole, bursting his shrunken sandals. The knobs on his hands grew fingers before his very eyes. Back came his hair, eyebrows, eyelashes. Under his hair were ears, and before him a nose. His skin was supple and soft. Can you hear the thundering roar from the multitude? Can you hear the man crying out, unclean, unclean? No, I am clean, I am clean. This is what Jesus can do for you. For anyone in an instant, in a split second of belief, the healing of Christ in salvation from sin is instantaneous and complete. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from every sin. Isn't that a beautiful description? Instantly healed so that people could see that. And for him, They used to have to walk around and yell, unclean, unclean, so that people would step away. On this occasion, he could say, I'm clean, I'm clean. Now, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, makes him do something. It's like, no, Jesus, 
Let him go and tell his family. Let him run around and enjoy this moment. (sighs) Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. Are you kidding? See that you don't tell this to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Jesus said, all right, we're not done. You've got a job to do now. I want you to go and obey the law. Jesus never broke the law. He broke the laws of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. But he never broke God's law. And he said, and the law requires that you now go. Two-day journey down to Jerusalem. And go and show yourself to the priests as a testimony to them. Jesus wanted the priests in Jerusalem to go, are you kidding? This man is completely 100% healed. How did that happen? And he would tell him, this man, Jesus, he laid his hands on me and he healed me. And as a result, the priests would have to face the fact of, okay, wait, this man must be from God if he's doing this. Unfortunately, the man didn't do what he was told to do. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely. Now, come on, can you blame him? He should have done that and gone to Jerusalem. He didn't. He went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Remember Jesus used to go to the synagogues? He couldn't do that anymore. From now on, the opposition to him would grow like crazy. The religious leaders would become more and more fearful of him, more and more angry against him. And as a result, he could not go into those towns. And as a result, his his teaching was now hampered. In, in his ability to go and touch those lives. Luke, the other gospel, adds an interesting statement. By the way, this story is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke adds an interesting thing. He says, Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. See the brackets? Whenever Jesus needed that, re- that, that, that rebuilding of his strength, He would go away and he would be with God the Father. And sort of by touching him, fill up his tank in a sense, relationally with God the Father, but also in terms of his ability to touch the lives of of others. Just some applications I'd like to take from this. The most untouchable people are those who will not let Jesus near them. You thought about that? That there are people who will not let Jesus come anywhere near. And as a result, they become untouchable. They don't want to hear about him. They don't want to know him. And as a result, they're the only untouchables in our world today. Everybody can be touched by Jesus if we're willing to come. I want to recommend that we learn to stay in daily touch with our Father. We absolutely need him. If Jesus needed him, we need him. And we need to have that time of prayer. It doesn't have to be hours of prayer, okay? It just whenever. We get into the car, don't turn your radio on. While you drive, pray. That's a nice isolated place. And luckily in our day and age, people think you're talking on a hands-free phone. So you can actually pray out loud and people will just ignore you. It used to be people would stare at you as if you're nuts. But now they go, eh, he's talking to somebody on the phone. Choose a time when you can be isolated and alone. And spend time with God your Father. And it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be, you know, thou Father art in the other. Just talk. Just spend time communicating with him. And then also ask the question, who is an untouchable person that I should contact? Who is an untouchable person in my life? There's lots of untouchables around us. We're weird. Every single society does this, but we do it as well. Where we put people in certain categories. 
And so we tend to stay away from people on the basis of, for example, age. Okay? We're so, we so desperately want to be forever young that in our culture, young people are the ones that we look to and the ones that we'll, we'll notice. And remember I talked about cellophane people? Old people are cellophane people often. You don't see them. Because we live in Southern California, that's our focus. By the way, the other thing is material possessions. What kind of car do you drive? Hmm, let me look at your clothes. Let me see where you are on the scale of a valuable person and a not valuable person. Did you know that Southern California is the most materialistic region in the United States and the world? We live in the thick of the most materialistic part of the world. And so sometimes the untouchables are people who just, they're too old or maybe too young. They're people who obviously don't have the kind of money we want them to have or the kind of lifestyle that we want them to have. The divorcees, the people who are going through grief, people who've lost their jobs, there are all kinds of people who become cellophane people. We don't see them. And there may be an untouchable person in your life right now that you need to go out and make contact with them there's a beautiful story of a man who, a grandfather who'd lost his wife. And he was sitting in the chair in his living room, and his little granddaughter came and climbed up in his lap and just sat in his lap for a while. And then she got off and she ran back. And her mom said, Why did you do that? What were you doing with grandpa? She said, I was helping him cry. Simple touch somebody's life in your life today who's an untouchable. Let's pray together. Maybe what you need to do today is touch your father. So find a time when you can sneak away by yourself and spend time with him. And if you've never let Jesus touch you, I beg you, drop your guard. He wants to come and turn you into the person you were created to be. Let him touch you. And then maybe there's an untouchable person Somebody that you've been avoiding. Somebody you need to go to. And just touch their lives in one way or another. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the fact that you did not withdraw from me. That when you looked down into my soul and you saw that I was one of the living dead, you didn't turn away being repulsed by me. But that you continued to pursue me. And we want you, Jesus, to do that in every one of our lives. So please pursue us. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.